0: and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, Put oil in your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness?
1: I want to ask you this morning as we think about prayer, what are you praying for? What do your prayers look like and what would it look like If your prayers were answered, what sort of world would you live in? If, as the old saying goes, our eyes are a window to the soul, our prayers, I think, are a picture of what we think heaven is like. Whether God's version of heaven or ours, our prayers reveal what we are hoping for and what we're hoping to create here on earth with our lives. You might have heard people dismissing thoughts and prayers as an alternative to actually doing something are doing something to fix the problems with the world. It's easy to say, I'll pray for that, harder to put boots on the ground. But this morning, Jesus challenges that idea that prayer is doing nothing and does nothing for how we then live. Jesus, if you've been with us so far, has been talking about the good news that the kingdom of heaven is arriving with him. And now he's talking about what that means when we pray and how to pray as part of his kingdom, people living in his kingdom. That's what the Lord's Prayer is at its heart, a prayer for God's kingdom to come. And it's a bit of a description of what that looks like, his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And so I wonder this morning, is this how you pray? Are you praying like Jesus taught us to pray for his kingdom to come? Not repeating the Lord's Prayer as a ritual, but praying the way Jesus teaches us to pray for his kingdom to come. Now, there's a lot to unpack in this prayer. There's a lot of big ideas contained in a very small amount of words, starting with where Jesus locates the Father. And so where he directs our hearts and our eyes and our words as we pray, our Father in heaven. Now, we've talked plenty about heaven and earth in the last couple of years, this idea that they're two separate realms, the heavens where God rules as the Most High and where there are beings who do his will in heaven and some who've rebelled, and there's this mirror situation on earth. This is an image from the Bible Project. They have some great material on this, but we've seen in the last couple of years how God created both the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1 and how the story of the Bible is those being brought together and how the climax of the story of the Bible in Revelation is a new heavens and a new earth united as one. The Bible is the story of that happening. And so when we pray, your kingdom come, we're acknowledging where we are in the story, that this hasn't fully happened yet, but that this is what we hope for, what we're living towards. We're not just praying for the end of the story, though, for that to happen in finality, but for the here and now as well, for bits of God's kingdom to start breaking in as heaven and earth come together in people recreated as His heavenly people, this kingdom of God bits of God's kingdom breaking in as we become like little cities on mountains shining for him we've seen that in the last couple of weeks we're praying that God's will might be done on earth as his kingdom breaks in as it is in heaven through people partnering with him representing him as image bearers who reflect the heavens and who God is here on earth if you've been with us the last few weeks we've seen our mountains play an interesting role in the story of the Bible. And that When Jesus is here on a mountain showing people how to pray, teaching people how to live, uh, it's significant. It's something that lines him up with the story of the Bible. The short version of what we've seen so far, if you're here for the first time, is that mountains work as high places in the story of the Bible, meeting places between the heavens and the earth. And through the story of the Bible, mountains are where people go to be in God's presence. Now, mountains feature right from the beginning of the story. I don't know if you've pictured Eden this way, but Ezekiel the prophet calls Eden a garden on a holy mountain. It's interesting to imagine a garden on a mountain. That's a new thing for me to picture Eden like this. Uh, but mountains start there and they keep on coming through the story. So when Israel passes through the Red Sea in the Exodus, we've been seeing lots of Exodus themes in Matthew, and they're, escaping is Egypt just as the Red Sea closes in on the chariots of Egypt, as they're starting their journey to live as God's people amongst the nations, his kingdom, Israel sings about how God is going to plant them on a mountain. They're going to be this people who will bridge the heavens and the earth. God will plant them in a place that he has made for their dwelling as a sanctuary, something established by God so that they can do this job being a priestly, image-bearing people for God, bringing heaven down from the heavens and into the earth. And along the way, as they head towards the land, we get these mountaintop scenes we've been looking at the last few weeks, meetings between Moses and God, where as Moses meets with and speaks to God, he then brings his shining glory down to earth. And so a few more mountains to set the scene for this week, when Solomon builds the temple in Jerusalem, God's dwelling place on the mountain he shows as Israel's dwelling place and God's glory descends from the heavens into the holy of holies in the temple Solomon David's son that's significant a king who builds a place for God a house for God he prays that God's name would be present and glorified in this mountain city in this temple that God's eyes would be open towards the temple on the mountain so he'd hear the prayers people pray towards the temple as they look to the heavens. The temple is a sort of meeting place with God, so prayers make their way through it into the heavens as he looks upon there, as he dwells there with his people, as people look towards the mountains. And so Solomon asks God to hear from his throne in heaven the voices of the people when they pray and then to forgive. He asks them to pray to God in heaven and asks God as it happens to forgive. He's being a bit like... Moses is a bit like a mediator between heavens and earth speaking to God here. And so there's this idea of the kingdom of God coming down from heaven and in the Old Testament the mountain is the start of that, kind of cascades down from there as God dwells with his people on the mountain. And so this might seem like just a little geographic detail we get in Matthew's Gospel that Jesus is up a mountainside, a physical setting, but Jesus, the new Moses, the new son of David, who will bring a new temple and a kingdom, is on a mountain talking about the kingdom of heaven turning up. Now, the NIV uh, renders what he says next as he's kind of talking about the mountain in, in the Beatitudes. We saw this a couple of weeks ago. just after the Beatitudes. Matthew gives us this idea that God's people are a light of the world. In the NIV, a town built on a hill, but actually you could easily translate this a city built on a mountain city on a mountain, that's a good name for a church. Uh, This heavenly city that Israel anticipated, not just coming out of Egypt in the Exodus, but as they were coming out of exile in the nations, A restored Jerusalem, a new place where God would meet with his people, God's kingdom coming with this holy city where heaven comes down to earth, just like we see in Revelation, for those of you who were with us last year as we looked at that, the heavens and earth coming together with a new Jerusalem. And so Jesus is picturing people who live as citizens of that heavenly city now as shining, glorious, image-bearing people. And so he's talking about the prophets being fulfilled with God's kingdom coming. Now, you can tell I'm pretty excited about mountains and I'll probably bang on about it for a bit longer. You're probably, you could either be bored with this mountain talk or looking forward to going to climb one to see if you can meet God or somewhere in the middle. But here's a fun thing, I think. When Ezekiel, the prophet who gets called the Son of Man, is told to prophesy at one point in the book of Ezekiel, God tells him to prophesy not to the people but to the mountains themselves. Uh, He says, the Son of Man says this as he speaks to the mountains. This is what God says. The enemy, and I think we're meant to picture Satan at that point, said of you, aha, the ancient heights have become our possession.' The enemy thinks he's taken over when Israel gets exiled from the mountain, when Adam and Eve get exiled the garden mountain here's satan thinking he's in control and if you think back to the temptation of jesus where does that happen on high places so ezekiel's here prophesying to the mountains this restoration this time where god will show he is still in control he still rules from the mountaintops where he will plant his people back on these mountains and he will make them be fruitful and multiply that's eden language again there's this restoration Not just of Israel to fruitfulness in the land, but humanity to fruitful life with God. Dwelling on the mountain, it's this meeting place between heaven and earth. This is Eden language. This is a mountain garden where people live and fruitfully multiply. Now we jump past this bit of the Lord's Prayer to get to the kingdom coming, but this is vital too. This idea that God's name should be hallowed or holy. Holy be your name. This too is a picture of what God's kingdom does. Like the temple, it glorifies God's holy name. His name is written on his people. God's people in the Old Testament failed to make God's name holy. And this is exactly why Ezekiel says they are in exile. Ezekiel says Israel was booted from the mountain, dispersed down into the nations for worshipping idols instead of God. And instead of drawing the earth up the mountain towards God, towards his heavenly life, They're kicked down. And even then out in the nations, they keep, instead of glorifying and making God's name holy, they are profaning his name. They are making his name unholy. And God is not going to put up with that. The restoration of the kingdom, it's going to be God's doing because he has concern for his name. He's going to bring them back from the nations for the sake of his holy name He's going to make a people who will glorify him. God acting to save, pulling people out of exile rather than people coming back, is going to make it clear and certain that it is him doing the work and it's for his glory. His name will be hallowed once again because he has concern for his holy name. So he is going to recreate this kingdom. He will show the holiness of his great name to the world. So when Jesus tells us to pray, hallowed be your name, he's telling us to recognise this, that it's God who will bring glory to his name. But he's also announcing that something has changed. That there'll be a people who pray this prayer who are living as God's kingdom in the world. This is something we're to pray for rather than something we're to do and then ask God to recognise, to get a, a pat on the back that we've made his name holy. We pray this because we know it has to be God's doing as he saves and resurrects and recreates and glorifies us so that we represent him again. As he gathers back his people, those exiled from the Eden mountain, from the Israel mountain, the Jerusalem mountain, and as he recreates them as this city on a mountain, this shining people, it's God who's going to be doing that. And in Ezekiel, we see he does this by putting his spirit into his people saving us by drawing us in, by dwelling in us so that by his power, we can start to live for his name again. We can start keeping his laws. We can start representing him amongst the people of the world, being little bridging points between heaven and earth. This restoring, this saving, it's not going to be on us. It's going to be an act of God placing his spirit in people. There is no glory for us in this in us becoming the people who glorify God. It is not about us. We will be his people, though, the people who trust in his Saviour and have this Spirit come and dwell in us, the Holy Spirit, so that we become these shining ones. He will create us just like he created the people in Eden and in Jerusalem. And he will be God, and his name will be great, and his name will be hallowed, holy. And then the mountains in Ezekiel will become like Eden. That's what Ezekiel said, the land that was laid waste will become like Eden. There'll be this new city, a new Eden. We see that at the end of the Bible story, heaven and earth merging together under God's rule. But as we pray this prayer and as we become these people, we become little residents of the new Eden now. As we repent, as we listen to the words of Jesus, as we repent and have his spirit Come and dwell in us. And as we prayerfully follow his king, we will get to live there. This is what we're praying for, life with God. But we have this life with God now. We have his spirit in us now, making us these bridging points between heaven and earth, these little pictures, these little pockets of the new Eden as we live these lives that Jesus calls us to. See, now like Israel between Egypt and Jerusalem, we're living with this hope. We're on this Exodus journey. We're not exiled from God anymore or even exiled in the nations and being trampled by the forces of darkness. The evil one doesn't rule the mountains. We are citizens of heaven on a journey with God to this destination where heaven and earth come together. And so that means like Israel in the wilderness on their journey, we rely on God to sustain us. What Jesus tells us to pray for, that God might give us today our daily bread. Now, this can be read literally just as about food, this prayer that God will provide for us, and it's not less than food. Jesus goes on in Matthew 6 to talk about God delighting in providing for our needs. So, every good gift comes from God. It's right to say grace at a mealtime to thank God for that provision. But, bread in the story. Bread in the Gospel, bread in the Bible story, stands for God's good provision of life for his people. Jesus gives heavenly bread through the story, like when he feeds the 5,000. And the literal wording of this verse is actually something more like, give us the bread of tomorrow today. It's this prayer for future bread, not just provision for now, but it could be that this is an eschatological idea, a, a view of the bread that will be served up at the end when heaven and earth come together. That's what that fancy word eschatology means, the end, bread from then, bread from heaven, the bread of heaven, the feast with Jesus in the kingdom. That's a, a good thing to be praying for, and Jesus refers to the life in the kingdom with him as he breaks bread with his disciples later on. But it can also be read exodusly. I've just made that word up. It um, can be read exodusly as a prayer for provision of the provision of heaven in the here and now. There's already bread from heaven in the story of the Bible, the story of God bringing his kingdom of heaven to earth back in the Exodus, back when that was Israel's job, when God sent bread from heaven, manna from heaven to provide for his people. This bread. Uh, In this story back in Exodus, there's even a bread of tomorrow. On the sixth day of the week, the day before the Sabbath, as a reminder of the holiness of God's Sabbath rest, that that was the destiny of the the people, rest with God, a little taste of Eden and God's provision. On the sixth day, they were to collect the bread of tomorrow, the bread of the Sabbath, the bread of rest. As a reminder, that they didn't need to work the ground any longer that God would provide for them just as he did in Eden. On that day, God gave bread for two days, the bread of today and the bread of tomorrow. So maybe that's part of the prayer for the bread of tomorrow today, not just for provision, but for Sabbath provision, for rest with God, for, for Eden-like heaven on earth, relying on God's hospitality as we take his presence into the world. as his image-pairing people, just like when God gave people fruit trees in the garden and said, be fruitful and multiply and take and eat. Even this prayer for bread, it's not simply just a prayer for food, but a prayer for heaven to break into earth, a Sabbath-like Eden life with God, for God to give us life. We'll see a couple more ways this is fulfilled as Jesus shows us what an answer to his own prayer looks like as we work through Matthew. But just briefly, Jesus' prayer moves on to how God's kingdom coming for us via forgiveness of sin impacts how we live as his people as we pray this prayer as forgiven people who forgive others and how life in the kingdom means following his example rather than Adam's or Israel's. Rather than the example that leads down the mountain into exile, that leaves Satan feeling like he's one and he's the king of the mountain, we're to pray that God would not let us fall into temptation but deliver us from the evil. That we might be delivered by God, saved by him, spared from that fate of exile from him, by God, in order that his name be glorified, that we live in his kingdom. And so I wonder if you've ever pondered, whether reading or praying these words in your own life, what it would look like for you if God were to answer that prayer. An easy answer is that it would look like the Sermon on the Mount, these teachings and commands of Jesus about how to live as part of his kingdom, it would look like that fruit being produced in your life. But if we pray your kingdom come, Jesus gives us a pretty good guide for what the kingdom coming looks like when he tells us how to live as part of the kingdom. But another answer is that it looks like that because it looks like Jesus. That he prays this prayer and then he goes on to show what it looks like for the prayer to be answered as Jesus, God's king, arrives to end our exile from God, God with us, and to restore God's kingdom as he brings the forgiveness of sins and the restoration of living for God's name and creates a holy people for himself as he pours out the Spirit with his Father. See, Jesus is both the prayer of the Lord's Prayer for the first time and the picture of what the answer to the prayer looks like. We might pray for the bread of tomorrow, the bread of heaven, a taste of the heavenly feast, salvation, like in the Exodus, like at the Passover when they eat bread and are saved, but Jesus gives us the bread of heaven. Not only the bread on the table at a meal, But as he shares in the Passover meal, the last supper with his disciples, and he takes the bread and he says, this is my body given for you, the bread of heaven given for us to give us God's life, life with him as his people. We might pray your will be done when we pray the Lord's Prayer, but Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he prays, as he's looking at the cross and what's to come, says not my will but your will be done, showing us what it looks like to live for God's kingdom, to put aside our own visions of what could be and to align our lives with his as we pray to him. And we might pray, forgive us our debts. We might pray for the forgiveness of sins, but Jesus comes to bring that forgiveness of sins through his blood, which at that same meal, he says, is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. See, for Jesus' prayer isn't empty. Thoughts and prayers aren't just doing nothing. They're what shapes the life he then leads. The words of the Lord's prayer even shape his life. They see him give his life to bring God's kingdom, to fulfill the law and the prophets as a new king who leads us on this new exodus as we journey with him until the end of the age, until heaven and earth come together finally in that new Eden. When Jesus teaches us to pray, it's not a choice between praying or doing something. It's about praying in a way that gives ourselves to God because God has given himself to us. He has given us the bread of heaven. He has given us forgiveness of sins through his blood. He has given us his spirit as he brings his kingdom into the world now. You see, just for one more bonus Ezekiel fulfilling fact, this isn't in Matthew, it's in Acts, which is written by Luke. But the disciples are there at the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Bread, vessel of Bread. At Pentecost, the people who put their trust in the risen and ascended Jesus are filled with the spirits, the way Ezekiel anticipates. Because Jesus has risen and now reigns in the heavens at the right hand of God, and he and the Father now pour out the promised Holy Spirit to give us life. And what Peter says there is if we repent, is what Jesus has been calling us to do, if we turn to him, and make him king. If we receive God's kingdom through him, the forgiveness of sins, we also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We become these bridges between the heavens and the earth, these glorious shining people, the city on a hill anticipating life with God in the new Eden on that new mountain. The prayer is answered in us as God's kingdom comes in this way. Now, we Prezies, for those of us in the room, are part of the City South community. We don't have a tradition in our church community of praying the Lord's Prayer. And I've gathered that's the case for the Church of Christ as well, praying the Lord's Prayer regularly in our gatherings. And it's possible we don't have a tradition of praying it regularly in our lives. But I wonder what we should be doing with these words of Jesus. And so let's come back to the question of what you are praying for, how you're praying. Do your prayers as you pray look anything like the prayer Jesus teaches? Does your version of the kingdom of heaven breaking into earth look like the story of the Bible, the new Eden coming? And does your life, shaped by those prayers, look like the life of Jesus? If your prayers don't and if your life doesn't, and when I think of my own prayers and my own life, my prayers sound nothing like the prayer Jesus teaches about things that would make my life easier, my kingdom come perhaps. They're not even shaped by the prayer Jesus teaches, let alone my life then being shaped by those prayers as I seek to see those prayers answered. And if that's you as well, then we need to repent. We need to change the way we pray and so change the way we live because we're actually changing the way we see God and his kingdom. Now, I think it's one thing to try to avoid the empty ritual of praying the Lord's Prayer uh, because we want to see it as a template and pray fresh expressions of that for our life here and now to think that we can do better in our own words. And and that would be fine, I think, to to take this as a template and then pray prayers like it. It would be fine if we were actually doing that, if we were actually doing better than just praying the words of Jesus. Uh, But maybe we need to ask if what we've pushed away as empty rituals... Are actually practices and words that are a bit like the creed that give us a reality defining, life shaping language that shape the way we think about the world and so the way we live in the world, that shape the way we think about God and His kingdom and so shape the way we live for God and His kingdom in the world. What if these words of Jesus, the Lord's Prayer, are not just a template but are words that give life to us, words that shape our lives? as we seek to live as part of his kingdom, with him as king. And maybe it's not the repetition of these words that makes them a dead ritual. Maybe they could be living words, but maybe it's that we don't have that incredibly rich picture behind the words we're praying, this picture of the reality of God's kingdom breaking in as a new Eden and what that would look like in our lives now if we were committed to bringing God's presence into the world as his spirit dwells in us and has our hearts shaped by who he is and where he's taken. Maybe what stops them becoming dead is them being brought into line with a living and active God and a story that he is working in the world through us, the end of exile from himself and life forever with him, with the bread of tomorrow to feast on. What if we were praying this prayer, asking God to radically transform our lives as his kingdom comes on us by his spirit, as we become new creations swept up in this to radiate his glory as we do his will. See, perhaps the problem with our prayer life is that we don't have a picture of who we're praying to and what we're praying for that animates us and gives us life. And so maybe if you want one take-home application from today, one practice, maybe we could all try praying the Lord's Prayer multiple times a day just in quiet moments just as you want to orient yourself to God's kingdom and his calling and this idea of being this shining city on a hill. Maybe you could pray these words with this picture in mind, this big vision, this picture of heaven and earth being fused together and that's starting in your heart as God's spirit dwells in you, starting in our community as God's spirit dwells in us and as we seek to obey the commands of our Lord Jesus, doing good deeds that glorify God, that make his name holy because that's what we've been saved for. See, the idea that prayer does nothing only works if when we pray, God does nothing to us, and if when we pray, we do nothing in our lives to bring them into line with what we're praying for. This is a prayer that's embedded in the Sermon on the Mount. A praying like this is a practice that Jesus commands us to embrace as we become God's city on a mountain, his kingdom coming, as we prayerfully seek his will, as we imitate the way he lives and the way he prays as a citizen of his kingdom. the reason Jesus gives for praying like this is to live for God's kingdom and his glory, not for our own. It's to avoid the hypocrisy of those claiming to live for the kingdom of heaven but really living for the kingdom of earth, claiming that God rules from the top of the mountain but really giving in to the temptation of the evil one. And we'll see that as Matthew's story unfolds. These hypocrites, it becomes clear as we get to the woes at the end of the gospel. He's talking about the Pharisees here, the religious leaders who pray to be noticed. Not pray because they're committing themselves to God's kingdom. Not pray in a way that means they recognise God's king when he turns up. See, prayer itself is an action, but this prayer without action, of the sort commanded by Jesus, is just another form of hypocrisy. Jesus will go on to say in what we read together this morning that our eyes are what lets light in and what shapes our heart so that we can reflect that light out. Prayer is gazing into the heavens. It's approaching God on his throne, and by the Spirit, it's us entering his court to ask our Father for things. This is such a profound part of the Lord's Prayer, and it's a profound part because of what Jesus says around the Lord's Prayer about who God is and what it means that he's our Father. Not only does Jesus call God Father, but he teaches us to approach the God in heaven, the ruler of the heavens and earth, to approach him and call him Father. And he says to do this knowing that God is not distant from us but with us. Throughout Matthew 6, he says all these things about God. He says he sees us, he knows us, he knows our needs, he rewards his children, he forgives us, he feeds us and delights in giving good gifts to us. He comes to give us his kingdom and his presence so that we might be with him as his beloved children for eternity. And this is what brings him glory as we recognise him as father and live in the light of of his love, as we fix our eyes on him so that through looking at his glory, his brightness, we become shining people. God won't just give us bread when we ask for it. He'll give us himself. He'll give us his son. He'll give us the spirit. He'll give us a kingdom and he'll do that for his glory. So what would it look like in our lives if we prayed this prayer? Consistently pray this prayer, gazing into heaven at God, our good Father, and seeing his glorious light, and so reflecting that in the world. If through this we began to set our hearts on heaven and so treasure life in God's kingdom, storing up treasures there, investing our time and energy there, rather than investing ourselves and praying for things that are part of the kingdom of this earth, things that will fade, we'd look like people who seek first his kingdom. It's one of the commands of Jesus. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. The first action in seeking God's kingdom to bring heaven to earth is to enter God's presence in prayer. It's to to call out to him as father. We'd look like Jesus. See, prayer like this is one of the commands that Jesus tells us where to practice if we want to be part of the kingdom of heaven, if we want greatness in the kingdom of heaven, if we want to be like our king bringing glory to God in the earth as people saved by him to represent his name. See, Jesus says that at the start of the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Mount ends the way it begins. Jesus calling us to this wise way of life, life built on him, and he says the person who hears his words and puts them into practice is like the wise person who builds his house on the rock and so survives when the storms come, when judgment comes, the people who seek his kingdom and live lives prayerfully shaped by fixing our eyes and our hearts on him are those who will endure, who will enjoy the new heaven and the new earth, the new Eden, with God forever. Now, maybe if you're out of practice praying like this or or even just praying this prayer, you might like to join me in doing it in a moment as we share communion together. I'm going to invite you as we prepare to receive this bread Remembering the body of Jesus given for us and this juice, remembering his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins, are to join me in praying these words, are praying these words not just as a ritual, not just as words you repeat, but words that give you a language by which to live, a language that comes with it, this picture of life with God for eternity, of a new heavens and a new earth where we dwell with God with us, where we see his face, where we become his shining and glorious people. City on a hill for all eternity. So, will you join me? I'll set a pace. Join me in saying these words Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one.